What's up, Chris? How's it going? Very well, Joe. How you doing? Fantastic. Really good. Yeah. So for a nice walk this morning and lovely Salt Lake City, it's um I hope it stays this way year round, but it won't. So anyway. <laughs> How's your We've day? We've got the sun shining like for the two or three days we get a year in England at the moment. So that's Oh. Nice. What do people do uh when the sun's out then? Usually complain that it's too hot. <laughs> okay. And then uh, and then as soon as it starts raining again, we complain about that. Okay. I see how it is. <laughs> Oh, <laughs> very exuberant culture um <laughs> yeah we, we play it closer to the chest perhaps than your side of the atlantic <laughs> yeah yeah definitely like my wife's out we're going off her walk this morning and she's like it's so beautiful out here and i think she proceeded to say that like 24 times um in the course of a 20 uh, minute walk so yeah so uh yeah if you want to take her to, to england uh, she'll uh, become a bit more uh, reserved um just complain about everything. So it's, 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 it's too green here. <laughs> give her give her six months in the north and she'll change her ways. <laughs> <laughs> Deal. Awesome. So, uh, yeah, for people who don't know who you are, do you want to give a quick intro? Okay. Um, I'm Chris Jenkins. I, uh, I've been programming since I was a kid. My life has always been in software, both out of interest and professionally. Um, I have I've done a few interesting things in my career. I've co-founded a company um, which was actually successful, which Congrats. makes it all the more network. Thank you. Um, I've been a developer advocate. I've been a functional programming contractor with far more work than I ever expected to get in that space. Um, for a while, I was exclusively doing front-end development in ClojureScript which is the version of Clojure that compiles to JavaScript. Okay. And I was busy. I was genuinely busy on that gig. Um, and these days, I am flipping the other side of the table. I'm a podcast host. Yeah. That's my main yeah, I remember jam. that. Yeah, I've been on your podcast. Um, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> so, and you're really good at it, too. Um, Thank you. Yeah, yeah, I think... Uh, but you'd have been doing podcasting for a while, right? Yeah, yeah, I um I did it for the company I was a developer advocate for last for approximately 70 episodes, I want to say. Mm. So, you know, you, you get you get into a rhythm after after that. Yeah, you figure it out. Yeah. yeah. It's always interesting having other podcasters on um your podcast cuz I don't know, it's just a different dynamic, right? Cuz you're both used to asking questions, being the host, and then you got to also play the role of the guest and um, yeah, yeah. The thing yeah. I find slightly strange is I think it's really important, personally, the way I do podcasting, to shut up and listen to the guest, right? And <laughs> I'm going to have to remember for the next hour or so to actually talk. We, we could just have, have a, a, a silent, yeah, we could just have like 50 minutes of silence and I guess we could just do that. So <laughs> I'll, just pl I'll just politely listen to you uh, listen. So, <laughs> yeah, we can call it an avant-garde post-podcast. <laughs> like, um, I always wondered, like, with silent meditation, for example, hmm. right? I guess some friends that do that, they go for 10 days and they don't uh, talk or anything. And one of my friends, he said that he did that. And you got to remember, this guy is like the loudest New Yorker stereotype you'll ever meet. I'm like, you can't spend 10 seconds being quiet. How are you going to do 10 days? It's the weirdest uh, thing. So, but maybe, maybe there's a silent podcast uh, opportunity out there. We could just um, stare at the, you know, stare at each other and 
Yeah. You know, long at least stay silent. I don't know. It'd be funny. We could sell CDs of it afterwards. And that kind of thing. <laughs> <laughs> It'd be funny if you sold uh, uh, physical CDs too. Of it. That'd yeah. Be, uh, that'd be more avant garde. So. <laughs> Well, cool. Yeah. Um, actually, the, 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 you touched on something really fascinating I want to get back to, which was uh, being a functional programming uh, contractor. Like that's, yeah. um, that's quite the niche. And then you're doing closure script, which is super niche, but surprisingly, you're very, very busy as well. Um, how did that happen? Um, kind of by accident. So I, um, I was doing Java for about 10 years in the startup I had. Um, and I got to the end of that, and for various reasons, I was kind of exhausted, All right, as you can imagine. But particularly programming-wise, I was kind of exhausted with Java. A lot of respect mm. for Java, but I just felt... If you'd asked me at that point in my career, I would have told you I could do anything in Java, but I just didn't have the strength left to do it. Mm. It's kind of a high-ceremony language. It can be quite tiring. And every idea you have opens a new file with boilerplate and getters and setters. You know, you yeah. know I, I'm not going to retread the criticisms of Java, but at that point in my life, I was exhausted. And I just went looking for the most different programming language I could possibly find. Just give me something new. Um, and I accidentally happened on Lisp. Hmm. And I thought, okay, Lisp, this looks completely weird, but that's exactly what I want. Uh, and I ended up choosing Clojure because I thought, if nothing else, I'll stay on the JVM and that will have some use to it, right? Yeah. And that opened my eyes more than to, to Lisp, to the whole world of functional programming. Right? This, the idea of immutability was enough to just blow my mind at that point. And programming that way, and I could not figure out how to program in a world where not everything was an object. Mm. And solving that puzzle, completely changing the way I think about software. That was fascinating to me. And it was exactly what I needed to rejuvenate my programming career. That's super and then, cool. Yeah, it was, it, was a, it was a really exciting exploratory time for me. And so I thought, okay, this is probably career suicide, but this is where I want to be right now. And as it turned out, whilst there aren't that many jobs for closure there seemed to be even fewer programmers for it. So it's like I was on the right side of the supply-demand curve, even though it was a tiny niche. And I got work. I got more work than I could satisfy, actually. It was good. It was a great time. And I was learning and learning. What was the learning curve like, going from object-oriented to purely functional? Kind of brutal, I think. Mm -hmm. Well, brutal probably putting it too strongly, but... I thought the weird thing about Lisp would be the syntax. Mm. And I got used to that really quickly. And it was actually the problem solving that was hard. That you end up thinking in a completely different way about how you solve problems. And the place I got to is the mental model is far less like little objects talking to each other and more about a pipeline where stuff mm. comes in on one conveyor belt, gets transformed by a function, and goes on to another conveyor belt to the next function. And once I got that mental model, suddenly it all started to snap into place, and I just loved building things with it. Yeah, that's interesting. I actually actually worked at a uh, a shop that was purely functional for a while. It was oh, yeah. it was interesting. Yeah, um, they had they definitely had the option of of choosing other ways of doing stuff, but the, the people were very much. Uh, 
of the opinion that if it's not functional, it's crap. So, <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah, it does tend to attract conversion moments. Oh, yeah. Like one, one of the uh, lead devs, he, he was telling me, you know, we would not have problems in business if people just programmed in functional um, <laughs> paradigms. Like, I don't know if you've run a business, but these aren't really the same things. But I, you know, I, I do yeah. appreciate your, your conviction here. Um, <laughs> but but it, it was really fascinating, though, because I think it was uh, in this case, it was people were programming F sharp. Oh, okay. Yeah. yeah, yeah, that was uh, the one that they chose to use. Um, and I know another shop around here, they did uh, like AI drug discovery, and they are a closure shop. Oh, okay. Yeah. Yeah. I thought that was really interesting. Closures, I mean, as well as being a functional language, it's it's an enormously fun language to work with because their whole thing of REPL-driven repl development, right? You feel like you're constantly interacting with the program. And that you can compare that to Java. Let's keep picking on that if we're going to pick on something. I felt with Java, you would do a small change and then you would run your test suite and wait for that to happen. You'd come back and do another change. And it was more, it was very stop and start. Whereas Clojure always felt like a conversation with my program that was gradually mm -hmm. evolving. That's uh, interesting. Maybe I should rediscover that. I mean, I, there, was, there was a period of time several years ago, um, I think when I was at that that um, company, I was doing functional. I was like, I'll, I'll check out Haskell. You know, I mean, it seems like a mm. cool language. Um, you know, maybe I can pick up this uh, functional thing. And then I, I don't know, ultimately got distracted by a bunch of other stuff. I was supposed to be writing machine learning algorithms and not learning functional programming. So, but um, it definitely, I, I see your point though, right? It, it definitely like molds your brain in a much different way. Like you, you see the world in a much, you see programming in a much different way than you probably otherwise would. So... Which yeah, there's yeah. no harm in that. It's cool. So I think it's one of the big advantages. I mean, sure, it can be great to have lots of different languages on your CV, but really, the thing is, have lots of different ways of thinking in your head. Mm, that's key. That's a really yeah. good point. So it's it's why I would say you know, if you can do a bit of logic programming too, because mm. I doubt you're ever going to get a job in that, but it does change the way you think. And then you come back to other problems with your existing tool set, and you've got more ways of thinking about how to solve it. So, um, I don't know. Do, do, so, do you do that? Do you do uh, with programming? Do you still like try and you know learn new new paradigms or new methodologies or practices? Yeah, the, the one I'm trying at the moment, um, which I picked up kind of via a podcast guest of mine, is a language called Gleam. Oh, I saw the I saw your podcast episode. I didn't listen to it, but what 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 is a okay? Is so, Gleam? so it's it's um, related to Erlang. So the thing that I find interesting about Erlang is it has a completely different way of thinking about how we do reliable fault tolerant distributed systems. Um, and they've got both a language and a platform for doing it that has like headline grabbing reliability claims. I've always found that really interesting and wanted to learn more about it, but I've never liked the language, Erlang. Mm. It's always put me off. And a friend of mine who was the guest had created a statically typed functional programming language that runs on this distributed actor-based reliability platform. And so that's currently occupying all my spare programming time. Like That's super cool. How can we use statically typed functional programming to build these big distributed super reliable systems? 
and it's philosophically quite different to the other statically typed languages I'm used to, which would say a big part of the way you solve these problems is you use the type system to try and get things correct before you run it. Mm -hmm. And Gleam does that, and at the same time, accepts that sometimes things are just going to crash, and you have to have a strategy for in the field. That's super interesting. It's it's quite cool. I'm still getting my head around it. it so yeah, I'm looking at it. Don't right ask now. me to dive too deep into the how because I'm still learning. But yeah, that's. Did, did you ever check out? Um, did you ever check out Elixir? No, I never quite did. Um, I was too busy with the Haskell world and thought, you know mm. what, I'm gonna I'm gonna wait because there was an attempt to port the uh, platform called the Beam to Haskell, and I played around mm. with that a lot, and it it, it was really good. Um, really enjoyed it, but it kind of the project got abandoned. So happens, yeah. So I've been waiting, and now Gleam is on my horizon, and it look, looks okay. like it's got legs. Interesting. Yeah, maybe I'll check this out. I've been, I've been, I know what you mean, though, because there was a time when I was programming a ton, and I think for the last probably year, I just have had no interest in it at all. Really, uh, for whatever reason, I've been. I guess more I've been writing and stuff too, and more of I think pontificating about um, sort of the futures of like, you know, data modeling and stuff. So I've just been more nerding out on that, but I miss programming, but it's like, I don't want to go back to the same stuff. Like my background's, you know, doing Python forever and other oh, languages yeah. and just, you know, but I'm like, I, if I could do something different, that'd be, might be motivating. So yeah, you need things to keep it fresh. And one of the yeah. great things about our industry is there are always new ideas to ex to explore oh, yeah. and discover. That's why I like going to conferences because a mm. good conference you come away with this massive notebook of new things to go and look at. Um, There's almost yeah, too many things sometimes, right? Oh yeah, always, always. My to do list is far longer than I can get through in one lifetime. But For sure. Never How do you choose inspiration though? is worth it. Yeah, that's such a good point. But how do you how do you prioritize and how do you how do you pick what you're going to focus on? Often it's like you make a note of all the interesting things you hear and if something mm. keeps coming up in conversations with interesting people it kind of pops it to the top of the stack, right? Yeah. So so I've been thinking a lot about um actor models recently and real-time data streaming and all that and I guess between all that and Gleam coming along being in that sort of shape of system that's finally popped it to the top of my stack but I guess Good you could make a parallel to marketing couldn't you if you want people to pay attention you've got to keep broadcasting the same message several times before it actually percolates to the top of their head yeah yeah, it is a lot like that. But what I, what I consider kind of what you're doing is more, you're, you're almost like an artist in some ways too, right? <laughs> like, you know, you, you're constantly reinventing, you know, what, whatever you did um, and building on top of that, but you're not, you know, um, playing the greatest hits all the time, right? So yeah, in that sense, in that sense, I'll accept that. It's, um, yeah, I've been very lucky that I found, by and large, this industry allows me to pursue my interests and still pay the bills. Mm -hmm. um, and 
it would have to because I would go stir crazy doing the same thing for too long. Right. But it's it's helpfully, it's always been on a bedrock of I want to build things in computers. Hmm. So there's been a market for that. But there's so much to explore within that short sentence. There are worlds within worlds. Oh, so yeah. yeah, I've never run out of things to usefully look at and build. Right. Then you can talk about them at conferences, you can talk about them on podcasts, right? And then write articles, yeah. and that's the other other part of it too. You know, so it's yeah, that, that's the other joy of it. Not once you've like built it and learned about it, you want to go and talk to people about it and hear what they're right. doing. Mm -hmm. And I think that's how I got into developer advocacy. Yeah, I walked through that because spend... that's, that's a fine line. Yeah, well, it's um, so what happened there was I'd been contracting, I think, for about 10 years actually. I'm really enjoying it and. I on the side, I just started for fun to organize meetups. I used to run um, mm. a hacking group. Um, we, we'd just get together once a month, and I would come in with a group of puzzles that we could do. And we'd That's vote cool. on them and break into teams. And you, it was it was great fun. We'd just sit in a pub and you'd like have a JavaScript team and a Java team and a Haskell team and an Erlang team all working to save, solve the same problem in their own way. That's so cool. And then we do show and tell and we'd stick around drinking until the pub kicked us out. And uh, I ran that for about four years before having two small children made it too hard. Yeah. But like, so things like that, I was talking at conferences, I was writing and a friend of mine came up to me and said, we're trying to hire a developer advocate and I think you'd be great at it because you can spend half of your time coding and the other half talking about it. And that sounded really good because I was sort of spending half of my time talking about it and not getting paid. <laughs> <laughs> so, yeah, that's how I got into developer advocacy, kind of by chance, but by it being what I was kind of doing anyway. What, what About what year was this? This would have been 20, 21. Okay. Yeah by the time I actually started doing it professionally. Got it. Um, it probably goes back to about 2017 when I started <clears> doing <throat> things of the same shape. Right. It feels like the, the developer advocacy is one of those um, careers that I think it's now kind of consolidating as to, as to what it is. But you know, talk to Tim Berglund, for example, he's got his mm -hmm. idea of what it is. Um, other people have their opinions of what it is but it's definitely kind of straddles you know as far as i can tell software engineering and uh marketing right or technology and marketing you're, you're sort of the glue between those yeah um i think you have to be very careful with the the word marketing because it has different facets right? that's true yep it's so there's a part of marketing that's just broadcasting advertising telling right. people you, what you want them to hear and i don't think it's really that but there is a part of marketing that is, you know, you've got to stand up to be noticed. You've got to, you, you having tried to build something valuable, you've got to tell people about it. Because if you've actually built something valuable, then people will be glad to learn about it. Mm -hmm. right? And there's a part of marketing that's checking that you've actually built the thing people need. So that's listening to them, 
listening right. to how what their experiences of solving the problems. And there's a part of marketing that's like in technical marketing, there's a part of it that's because it's it's not as easy as selling a candy bar, right? You've got to help people actually use the tool before they realize how great it is. Yeah. This is all predicated on building a good product. But having done that, you've got to go out and just get stuck in with a developer conversation. Yeah, I was kind of viewed as kind of the bottom up marketing versus the top down. But you know, yeah, that's fair. yeah. So I mean, the advertising, right, is always top down and you're shouting at people, whereas, um, you know, I've run meetups for Jesus, like 11, 12 years now, maybe longer, actually, because I had a, a oh. sort of a Ruby group way back in the day, a Rails group. Um, but you know, so I've always had to deal with, um, not deal with, but interact with, uh, developer advocates, for example, and the marketing teams of the companies. I think it's, a, I don't know. I always like dealing with the engineers if I can, or the, uh, uh, developer advocates, no offense to the marketing people there, but, uh, <laughs> they, they kind of want to insert their message into the, uh, the meetup. And I'm like, it's, you know, my number one rule is like no shilling, you know, you can come yeah. and talk about what you're doing, but don't, uh, you know, this isn't a, uh, um, a chance to have an unpaid advertisement at my event. So, yeah, yeah. you know, cause, cause for me, it's always about community. Right. But I think the, the good developer advocates and the good, um, even the uh, solutions engineers or the software engineers who come in and talk about the product, like they do a really good job at just knowing how to speak to devs, right. In ways that, you know, the marketing comms department just simply can't do. So, yeah. 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 I mean, I think for me, the ideal is it's quite hard to find a good developer advocacy job because the ideal mm is that it's something you would talk about for free anyway, because right. you're just excited by the technology. And then the job is to actually prioritize doing that above all the other things you talk about. Mm. Um, you know, and to be at particular conferences rather than just the ones that you're particularly that you fancy joining. <laughs> that's what that's where it becomes a job. But yeah, I mean, I, I spent a couple of years talking about Kafka and I'll still happily talk about Kafka for free. Um, but if you want me to do it at specific times and places instead of the other projects I'm working on, then you have to pay me. Right, right. Yep. Yeah, um, that's interesting. Equally, Haskell, we'll talk about if anyone's hiring for Haskell DevRel, let me know. <laughs> <laughs> Seems unlikely, but I might as well throw it out there. <laughs> Uh, yeah, I'm not sure how many uh, Haskell uh, companies are out there. Uh, but if if you're listening or if you know somebody, uh, hire Chris. You're amazing at it. So, <laughs> yeah, See what I mean about that... finding niches and hoping it works out. Get even more niche. Um, yeah, so, absolutely. Yeah, Haskell companies operating in like the uh, you know fintech space or um, using oh, there's a surprising number of those. Actually. Oh yeah, actually, yeah, yeah. So one industry um, where I found companies actually... in video games, that'd be the nichest mm -hmm. I can imagine. <laughs> oh man. Um, yeah, I, I think it, it's an interesting, uh, community is interesting right now, right? Like I, I, for, for where I am, I'm, you know, now going or, you know, around the world, speaking at events and, uh, you know, showing up at, you know, meetups and parties and stuff. Right. And that's, but again, to your point, it, it, that's, um, it's it it sounds like fun. It's also work, so do have to get yeah. paid. But it, it's interesting now because it, you know I, I didn't uh, I don't know if I saw that before. We had kind of the nerd famous uh, you know, data celebrity showing up to a, an event, right? Like a, maybe that's 
been a thing for a bit, but uh, it seems like a different angle, um, you know, than before. So yeah, for yeah, me to show up, I, I I tell people like I don't really, I'll, I'll kind of talk about, I'll have a general theme of what I'm talking about. I don't really shill, so mm. so it's it's a weird, interesting spot to be in, right? So because uh, yeah, there but, are definitely people out there who are who are celebrity. I'm not even sure what the ver- what the word is. He's like celebrity tech people, few well known yeah. names. I don't think that's, I mean, I don't think, I think that's just normal human behavior, right? That we, we tend to form relationships with like parasocial relationships with people who are interesting in our, in the field we're excited about. Um, yeah. Yeah. It's, it is, it is a fascinating thing. Um, I think it's more just to get people to show up and then you can, you know, uh, pitch your stuff on the side, I guess, or whatever. But yeah, I, I don't know. Something I've noticed where I, I feel like the, um, the marketing angles, right? That that um, mm. that companies are trying to take now. They're they're trying to be, a, I think, a lot. Um, uh, I don't know, more outside the box, I suppose, than what they used to do. Because I think it, it's like every company has a dev dev you know, a dev advocate now. Um, yeah. You know, and so it's it's extremely noisy. So I think it, it, what I'm noticing is there's, you know, new angles people are trying to take to you know just to get visibility. Because I think especially with the number of tools out there right now, it's like it's just so crowded. Um, and like, you know, if everyone has a dev advocate, for example, they all want to clamor to go speak at a meetup or a conference. It's like, how do you, yeah. how do you get the, how do you get the word out these days? Right. It's, it's hard. It's tricky. Um, I think, I mean, maybe I'm naive, but I think it comes back to having, it, I don't have tricks. I just have the basics. Is it something that's worth learning about? Can you explain mm. it clearly? Can you can you build interesting things or useful things or get rid of difficult problems with it? And if so, go out into the world and tell as many people about it as you can. Mm-hmm. Because if it's interesting, it's useful. If it's a useful, valuable solution, it will you will find the pool of people that need, want to hear about it. And I think what really separates DevRel from marketing on a, this must be a separate function thing is another part of marketing is understanding your audience and talking to them. Yep. And I don't think people with a traditional marketing background can even speak the same language. Not unless you've done it. No. Right. Not, you not with any right? credibility. You get people who say, you know, you get people who say javascript when they mean java and their credibility is gone instantly because they just yeah. looked up terms on wikipedia and thought they were programmers you can't or fake chat it GPT, because it, yeah. it's such a deep field mm-hmm. yeah chat gpt yeah no, i think it's that's a success of um or how you run a successful meetup too is i think in large part about fostering that sense of legitimacy right and in, in the community like um, you know, by devs for devs, for example, right? When I started my yeah. Python meetup, right? That was, it was Pythonistas for Pythonistas, right? And we yeah. had a very hard line in terms of like sponsorships and so forth. Um, you know, just we really wanted to keep the community going at all costs. And, you know, and, and but it's 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 a big balancing act, I think, because the temptation is, oh, you know, these big companies, when they want to come in and sponsor things, right? And that's where dev, dev, uh, dev advocates might come in, but they have to have, do it in a, tasteful way 
for sure. Because mm. otherwise it'll ruin it overnight. Like if we had a, you know, somebody who did exactly what you said, right? If that happened at a, say a Python meetup or a Java meetup, I mean, dear God, <laughs> like, <laughs> like, where did you find this person? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> can, it's, they, can, you get, it's, can you get them to leave now? Thank you. <laughs> so It's one of those things. I don't think it's that hard to be credible if you've got the background in it, but it's very yeah. easy to be found out if you don't. Mm -hmm. Super easy. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, developers are super sharp um, and don't like bullshit. It's, it's, yeah. it's strange enough, uh, but yeah. that's, I mean, I like that. I like that about us. I think it comes, yeah. I think it comes quite naturally of us spending most of our time with a machine that doesn't care about your bullshit. Mm. You, you can't con a computer into working. It will, it, you know, it, it keeps you ruthlessly, brutally honest about what you're saying, because that's the only way it will work. Uh, and I think, you know, that's a good, healthy thing. It means we've got a really strong bullshit detector because we've been trained by the best. It also means I think sometimes we can lack the social graces that are needed to go out into the real world and talk to people. That definitely happens too. <laughs> yeah, you, you you can't you can't go into a marriage the same way you go into a conversation with a computer. Well, unless your uh, spouse is also a, uh, a programmer, then, <laughs> then I guess that, you just, that would uh... be a conversation I'd like to listen to. Oh, I have friends like that. They're, they're both, yeah. you know, I have lots of, uh, yeah, actually quite a few uh, couples I know are uh, devs. And it's uh, it's fascinating to see, um, for sure. I, uh, I'm glad my I'm glad my wife doesn't, uh, she works in finance. I, I'm really glad, so I don't have to talk about what I do. Like you wouldn't, you, you wouldn't <laughs> yeah. understand and you wouldn't care. So we'll just, uh, we'll talk about other things. And so it's yeah. a good way to unplug. Yeah, because I, I, my, uh, my friends, who are married, who are devs. I mean, they'll talk, um, the, the separation between work mm -hmm. and the craft of, uh, coding, for example, and just their, the marriage doesn't, um, they're inescapable. <laughs> so it's like, you, <laughs> you, you can't turn off. Yeah. Yeah. I think I'd find that quite hard, but I don't know. My wife's in, um, in, uh, she's an editor in the fiction world. Oh, no way. So yeah. So it's a completely different world. And I think that's good. We, we, I like hearing about what she's up to probably more than she likes hearing about what I'm up to, but there we are. That's so fun. What kind of, what kind of editor is she? So she mostly edits, um, people who she does a lot of work editing novels that aren't quite there. So you've written a novel, you, you want to get it published, but it's not being picked up. And like they have an agency that's kind of a, a clinic for helping you see the gap between your best and what the market demands. Right. Mm. And so I, I, I could not do her job because that means structurally by definition, she's spending a lot of her working hours reading books that aren't worth publishing. Um, yeah. And I don't know how she does it, but she's brilliant at it. She's got, she can read 200 pages of something that's barely readable and sit and, you know, get the insight as to what pieces are missing. There's That's something, there's something of a programmer in her, something of a systems architect. I say, but I don't think she'll ever do it. She'd probably be pretty good at it if she did. So, yeah, I don't, I don't think she'd ever uh, get through the first couple of years that you need to do <laughs> on 
on the front line to get there. But she does have that way of synthesizing a huge amount of information and figuring out the missing pieces, which I respect. Interesting. Yeah, after I published, uh, well, during the writing process for our book, too, it was um, just working with editors. You have a lot of respect for what they do. It's it's a it's a craft, right? And there's different types of editors, too. Like when we wrote the book, it was you have a development editor who's basically um, somewhat of a project manager. Uh, they keep you on task, but they also kind of help you uh, develop the story arc and, um, you know, kind of the structure of the book. And then, they, and then when the book went to print or right before they had a copy editor, and I don't know who this freak of nature is, but like <laughs> they took the book and copy edited the entire thing in like two days. Wow. And yeah, I don't know if that's a robot or but I think it was a person. Um, yeah. But the, uh, the edits, I mean, every, every page had like lots of red lines. It was, it was nuts. It was thousands of edits. That's so, astonishing. Yeah. Like, I couldn't do that job. That would be, be insane, right? But, no. And often copy editing, I think you end up reading the book on the level of commas, right? And punctuation. Mm -hmm. It's like, how do you do 200, 200 pages of that without going completely snow blind? I don't know. Yeah, because it was also like, you know, the Chicago, um, uh, there's, I don't know, there's certain like, standards i think chicago is one of them uh and a few others but it's like you know there's editorial standards that you have to have too um structurally like how do you um how do you do quotes how do you do citations and stuff right these are oh yeah um you Let's know have there, a fight about there, the oxford comma that kind of thing yeah <laughs> right but that's that's the level that you're at at that i'm just yeah. like holy crap that's 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 it's insane but more more power to whoever does that kind of work that's that's really cool but there are definitely parallels you know back to to programming, right? Like, I think it's, um, you know, you're trying to make sense out of something at the end of the day and give it structure and give it a finality, right? So, yeah. I think there's a lot of overlap between programming and writing. Like, oh, yeah. We, we talk, we talk about doing drafts, right? Draft programming, like a prototype is, is drafting the first draft of our, our story of how the system should work. And then, one of the things I learned from my wife is one of the differences between an amateur writer and a professional writer is how much do you rewrite? And we don't use the word rewrite. We use the word refactor. But it's the same thing. How much do you go back into the thing you've already completed and keep finessing it until it's up to the quality you need? Mm -hmm. and one of the best books I ever read on programming that doesn't think it's about programming is Stephen King's book on writing. On writing. That's yeah. such a good book. It's a really good book. And it's a programming book, if you ask me. Mm -hmm. yeah. yeah. I also didn't realize he wrote most of his books when he was like madly drunk. The entire, like, Oh, I didn't take that in. <laughs> Did he? He was a raging alcoholic for years. Yeah, all of his I best books know. were written when he was like trashed. Oh, geez. Yeah. Then he one day he looked at it. I guess he um, looked at his garbage can that was full of beer cans. And he's like, God, I'm an alcoholic. And he's like, I quit done and he uh kept writing yeah but i was like yeah he got really personal in that book too you know um but that it's such a good book it's one of my favorite books it's so mm. it's interesting you re -read, uh, that. read that it's worth rereading it it's so good yeah i don't know how these artists function on this many drugs i really don't like how does Jimi hendrix even pick up a guitar when he's high much less play it like that right I think it's just part of the art, man. It, it, you know, it sounds like such a cliched hippie thing to say, but it's like, you know, it, it just, uh, to me, the, you know, the artist and, and 
the drugs and and whatever their tool is it's all one and the same sometimes and uh you know and, and, and whatever comes out is just whatever comes out that's that's how that's how it is and you know and as, as watching uh that movie sid and nancy uh about sid vicious the uh bass player for oh. the sex pistols yeah, yeah really good movie but really sad um you know because it's about like his downward spiral with his girlfriend um you know how he ods uh but really good movie but i was like you know as i was watching it as some of my wife like you know i don't think that a guy like sid vicious for example right like he mm. he's supposed to die young there's no way this guy makes it to like you know 40 years old like that's just yeah, not yeah. in the cards for this guy like this is <laughs> this is exactly how it should be this guy ods and it's like the perfect ending for him it's sad <laughs> But there's no other way for it to happen, right? Like that's just because it's like that's the rock star, punk rock lifestyle that he was living, and like that's the art of like what he was doing, and it's tragic, but that's you know. Yeah, I know what you mean. It's like I think of Keith Moon, the drummer from The Who. Yeah, and that guy was going to find a way to kill himself one way or another. Mm -hmm. uh, yeah, he died by crashing a Rolls Royce into a swimming pool and drowning. I don't know. I think. Don't quote me on that. But he he died <laughs> some way like that. Some random crazy thing. Yeah, but you know, I, I think it's. It, it, I don't look at these tales as being you know they're they're tragic, but they're also to me that's I guess it's part of it's part of the artist, right? Like that, that's that's how it is, and so you know it's um it's in a weird way like they're death in itself in their wake. Yeah, in the way they die too. It's just like that—that's part of the act, right? So it's yeah, like, yeah. It's it's interesting, and um, but yeah, there's a lot of parallels between like you know, I think programming and, and art too. Um, you know, like it was when I was in Munich uh, last month. I was hanging out with this um, one of my favorite DJs. This old guy. He's like 60 years old. His name is DJ mm -hmm. Hell. He was like, I think, uh, yeah. Well, his name is Joseph Helmet or something. So he called himself DJ Hell. But he's like, <laughs> um. He was like, I think, the first electronic music DJ in um, Germany, and I believe in Europe as well, or one right. of the first. But he's like the guy who, um, you know, I don't know, started the the whole like rave scene there and stuff. And I had the opportunity to talk to him for an hour right before his set for some reason. Hmm. I don't know how this happened, but just drinking beers with this guy and like, and I asked him, you know, so the conversation was all about reinventing yourself and staying relevant as an artist for because he's been yeah. DJing for forty years and like that's crazy, right? Like a lot of people, you know. You're old now. You're 60 years old and you're still DJing and still killing it as a DJ too, by the way. Yeah. But his, his whole thing was, you know, you you have to keep reinventing yourself. So don't do your greatest hits tour, right? Like you have to always, yeah. always do the new stuff, um, you know, and kill what made you great. You have to keep doing that, you know. So kind of like what you did with uh, Java and moving to functional. It's kind of like that, you know, reminded me a lot of that story for, you know, it's a similar type of thing where I mean, that's what I meant. You, you remind me a lot more of an, of an artist in that way where you're just reinventing yourself and, um, you know, trying to stay relevant to yourself, I guess. Right. Not even to other people, but it's just like, how do you keep going? Yeah. I think it's partly, it's like, why are you doing it? Um, mm -hmm. and paying the bills is definitely somewhere on the top 10 list, but I didn't get into programming to pay the bills. I got into it cause I was curious. Mm -hmm. And if I couldn't satisfy my curiosity, I'd go mad. I, I or worse, I'd get bored and die inside. That happens, I think, to a lot of people though. Yeah. Yeah, it does. It does. And I think we it's, have to fight it fight against it. Well, and the temptation in this industry too is you can die inside, but you're still making a lot of money. 
right? Yeah. So th- that's that's the temptation is, I mean, it's not like you're a you know a bricklayer. I mean, those guys, you know, it's hard work and stuff, but and boring. But I kind of like doing it. But I, I don't think I could do it forever, right? But uh, with programming, though, even if you're programming at like some um, you know mega corporation doing the the most god awful mind numbing code, it's like you still might get paid enough to make it worth your while. And I see this all the time. Yeah, all the time. Yeah, I think that's why some people. I think it can be dangerous in our industry to get the mm-hmm. top paid job that you can get because then there's nowhere else to go that doesn't look just too painful to go down to. Um, and you can do, and equally, there's no need to because in this industry, you can do very well on 80% of your top earning potential and be mm. far more fascinated by what you're doing. Yeah. Um, I think that's a worthwhile trade-off because it's not like if we take if we take the less commercial job, we're going hungry in programming. We're very, very lucky financially. Oh, very lucky. Even with a downturn, it's still I see salaries and they're still substantially more than I see in other industries, right? And I think yeah, the danger is too that I, I think as developers that are getting paid a lot of money and have pretty cushy lifestyles, it's like you get addicted to that cush lifestyle. And I think there's some sense of entitlement too, where it's like, um, you know, it just, the expectations are higher, but I think it's your point. If you're willing to kind of think outside of that, right. And find something that really interests you. I mean, hell you're a, a functional programming contractor and, <laughs> yeah. uh, you know, closure script. I mean, that's, it made it, you know, what I imagine is a decent living at that. And yeah, yeah, I did very well out of it actually. And I wouldn't, if I'd been looking for a career move, I would never have found that. Mm, walk me um, through that. It's like the smart thing to do when I left my previous role as like CTO of the startup, I would have either gone full time into management as a CTO for another company or a consultant or just carried on plying my Java trade at some large corporation that could pay me more. That would have been the smart career move. I might have made a bit more money doing that, but I would have been bored, dead inside. And I I definitely thought interest first and then find a way to make it work out as a career. Um, for which my strategy wasn't that sophisticated, a bit like developer advocacy. Mm. You know, just go out and talk to people about what you find interesting and find the network, talk to people, people will talk about what you're doing, the grapevine will work for you. If you get out of your bedroom and talk. Um, I know. So that, that's all I, I wish I'd, I wish I had some secret source for making your career fascinating. But my only secret source is, you know, do what interests you and talk about it. Yeah. Yeah, I agree. I'm in a similar boat, right? Like I, I could go get the job at the big company. I mean, they're asking, right? And I, but I, yeah. what I realized is like, I can't do the things that, that got me to where I am today. If I, if I go work there, you know, most big companies are going to put a muzzle on you, mm. right? Or you're going to have to talk about, I also have a really hard time caring about um, most people's problems, I guess, most companies' problems. <laughs> You know, yeah. I have a hard. I have a really hard time getting excited about things uh, that I'm not, you know, working on myself. But if it's you know, 
I, I need to get excited about this new feature that's coming out for a, for a product. I'm like, I just have a, such a hard time getting motivated. Um, so if that was my uh, job, yeah. I, I would have to force myself to do that. Like, yeah. you know, um, but do you know, I always, I've always found that quite easy. Interesting. Um, yeah. It's like what it, on the times I go for a job interview, I'm trying to find out what makes their problems interesting. Mm, and I think I'm generally good pretty good at it. Finding out where, where that is a genuine problem that if we solved it, people's lives would be better. But most companies are at least trying to do that. Right. Um, and if you can find it, then you find where the magic of the job is. That's a good point. Yeah. Um, I'll quote Mary Poppins for you. <laughs> In every job that must be done, there's an element of fun. If you find the fun, snap the jobs a game. <laughs> there's a lot of truth in that though right it really is yeah yeah that's that's awesome yeah i, I don't know i mean maybe i, I don't know I'm a bit of a curmudgeon so uh, <laughs> probably probably something to work on but no it's 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 a, it's a good that's a good quote and a good attitude to have yeah because i think you're you're right are you, it's not like there's uh, companies out there try to you know intentionally do evil or, or be malicious right i mean that they, they are Generally trying to not. improve something yeah i mean there might be but um yeah, the there are part. some companies that don't really know what they're doing, and they can be depressing to work for. But yeah. mostly, people are trying to chip away at the cold face of the world, right? Mm -hmm. um, and the job, and I, I think this is also a thing in podcasting, which is probably why I like it. You're trying to find what makes your guest most interesting, mm -hmm. and what makes their problems really fascinating. And I'm, you know, just it's it's. I guess it's an exercise in empathy, trying to imagine mm. their world and what what looks difficult and what looks possible. And I like that. I like that too. I was thinking about this last night too, and on a bike ride, and I was like, you know, it's interesting just the uh, the different stories and the different lives you you come across in podcasting. Right. Everyone's everyone's got their story. Everyone's got their thing going on. Right. Um, and it's your chance to kind of intersect with that person for for an hour and kind of get into the world in ways that they probably don't get to talk about or, or you know, or think about that often because everyone's off doing their own thing. Right. But, um, yeah, you know, it's 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 this interesting mind meld moment. Um, yeah. And it also connects to something I really liked about contracting, which was. Mm. I mean, one of the great things about contracting is you get to work in so many different kinds of company with so yeah. many different kinds of people. And you can almost say, that guy over there is doing really interesting stuff. I wish I could work with him. Yep. And you probably can in the next season of things because the, the carousel of the job market moves so much faster in contracting. Yeah. And, you, and I, that moves even faster in podcasting. You get to live vicariously. And mm -hmm. just for a tiny window, work with the people you've always wanted to work with. It's so true. Yeah, it's so true. And I didn't yeah, really it, think it, of myself as a pe like a people person, but I guess in that sense, no, you definitely say, are. You definitely are. Yeah, I mean, in, in your own I'm way, a you geeky think... introvert too. <laughs> I mean, I consider myself to be that, right? If I'm not here, you know what I'm doing? I'm sitting up upstairs in my my reading chair, like reading books or you know, mm. taking notes or writing right now, not even writing code, yeah. just writing words. Right. But, um, to me, I'm 
it's kind of like programming, but different. Um, uh, but, but no, I mean, I'm, I'm also like super, um, introverted Matt, Matt my co-author says I'm very extroverted, but uh, you know, I, if I don't need to go hang out with people, I usually don't, I'd rather just, you <laughs> yeah. know, jam out. I mean, Lord knows I got a you know, stack of books I need to get through and, you know, a lot of things I need to write and content that needs to be done, but it's like, but I, I, but podcasts are like the one where I where it's like, you know, just get a chance to talk to really interesting people. Yeah. Peer into their world for a while. Yeah. And they can peer into yours too. Right. If you, if you want. And yeah. Yeah. And it's interesting too. I, I, like a lot of my friends are starting podcasts and it's just like, I, I kind of joke that the, um, all of our phone calls are just gonna be podcasts pretty soon. So <laughs> yeah. it's like, yeah, but th- that will be okay because I think that's, I think it's a reflection of this very human desire to communicate, right? Com- human beings are above all else, they're tool makers and communication engines. We are just brains are mm-hmm. hardwired to solve problems and talk. And that's great. So if more people are starting podcasts, having more conversations, that seems deeply human to me. And I oh, love it that. definitely is. Mm-hmm. Yeah. That's cool because people can t- have their own takes on, um, you know, topics or whatever. Like I, I always feel like content in itself is like it's, it's a multiplicative game. You know, like... Mm. I was on your podcast. That's awesome. People can see that. Now you're on mine and people can see that. And, you know, and, but it, it, they're different conversations, you know, and mm. um, I think it's really cool. You know, whereas in consulting, right, it's kind of like that's a, like a zero sum game. Like if you and I had a, you know, competing for a deal, one of us is going to get it, you know, but not both of oh, us. Yeah, right. I what you mean. Yeah. But, it, but, you know, I always found like content, especially podcasting is one of these things where it's, um, again, it, I think it just grows yeah you know, everyone's profile there's no competition for conversations right no because we need isn't. an infinite number of them as humans mm-hmm. and always will oh yeah yeah i mean so i always listen to uh, stand-up comics um you know uh in various uh, stand-up comedy podcasts right so yeah. and all these comics get in each other's podcasts and it's just utterly hilarious every single time so yeah so. that's a feel i've not really listened to those kind of podcasts. i must do yeah i probably enjoy that a really good one is uh, "We Might Be Drunk" uh, oh with Mark. <laughs> yeah, with uh, Mark Norman and uh, Sam Morrill. So that's hilarious. Um, yeah. yeah, they're two of the best comics I think at the moment, or some of the best. Uh, yeah, your mom's house is also good. That's Tom Segura and his uh, wife, who's a comedian. So you want to talk about like <laughs> the the other odd couple, uh, two programmers? Now you got a uh, two comedians who are married to each other. That that. It's got to be hilarious. Oh, that could be very tiring or very hilarious or both. <laughs> right. Like, what do you shut off? <laughs> the yeah, jokes. Yeah. I think it just gets to the point, like, again, where your, your life just basically becomes art in itself. Like, I think, you, you know, uh, you don't shut off, maybe. Um, yeah. That know, could just... be dangerous. But I mean, if you're the kind of person that wants an audience, which most comedians have to be, right? Yeah, I could see that be being quite fun in itself. Mm-hmm. I'll tell you a podcast I love, again, talking a completely different field. Yeah. But I see in the background, you've got a lot of synthesizers. Mm-hmm. So one of my favorite ones is about synthesizers. It's called Why We Bleep. Ooh, I'm going to check that out. And the host of that, I mean, it's just going into different artists' worlds and hearing about how they do what they do. And because it's electronic music, it's often quite experimental. So they have their own very very much have their own process and he just has the most wonderful voice 
perfect cool. voice for radio. And it's just why we bleep is great. I love it. I like the description too. Uh, why we bleep is inspired by the mysterious, unique, and amazing people behind the equipment and music that we love. It's about uh, getting better at uh, making music, dweebing out over music and synth technology. That's uh, yeah, that's awesome. Yeah, I just followed it. Yeah, it's really he's cool. good. He's really good. Well, awesome. I know we're uh, coming up on time here. Um, wonderful conversation. I feel like every time we chat, um, it. Uh, it goes in pretty interesting directions, right? But for, in a good way, obviously. So. Yeah, this didn't go where I was expecting it to, but I very much enjoyed myself. Well, when I was on your podcast, I don't think it went where, where you expected it to go either, nor, nor <laughs> yeah, me. That's true. <laughs> I think you even said that the uh, the intro, you're like, yeah, I thought we were going to talk about something and then it ended up being something else. But Yeah, yeah, I remember thinking we were going to talk about Python scripts and we really, really didn't. <laughs> no, no, but I think it, it was good. It was a good show, though. Um, I, I had a lot of fun. I think you, you have a... Like you can tell when somebody's been doing podcasting for a while, right? It just it, it, the quality of the conversation and the um, the questions is, is there, and I was like, okay, this I'm I'm in good hands no matter where this goes. It, well, it comes with having good guests, so thank you. It does come with having good guests, right? Yeah, that's for sure. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. But, but yeah, thanks. Um, yeah, wonderful chat. So yeah, thanks for being yeah, on. Pleasure for to talk to you. Anytime for people who want to learn more about you, how can they do that? Uh, you can start with the Developer Voices podcast, which is trying to be exactly what it says on the tin, uh, listening to the developers who are trying to make the future. Um, I'm also on Twitter. Um, it's Chris with a K, A Jenkins. It would be Chris with a K Jenkins, but apparently that's a Carolina linebacker. The Carolina oh. linebacker, the Panthers. A guy who played for the Panthers got all my good handles, so I had to stick my middle initial in. Oh, you got so I'm Chris A. Jenkins everywhere. Yeah, there's a football player and a basketball player. Yeah, just as I thought he was going to retire and sell it to me, the uh, basketball player came in. <laughs> so I know. So it's going to be Chris A. Jenkins forever now because that's the only way to get them registered. Awesome. I'll put those in the show notes. So. Cool. Well, hope you have a wonderful day, Chris. So, thank you very much. You too. I'll talk to you again yeah. sometime. Hey, take care. Later.